This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. Elliot, it looks like we're going to have football this year. Football? You know what that is? You mean like soccer? Kind of like soccer. U.S. soccer. Oh, 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 oh. Football, we always were going to have football, but just a question of whether it would be professional or not, wasn't it? Exactly. And now, the only thing holding it up, was yes. There, was there ever really any doubt? Did no, you think, as soon as the paycheck stopped for both sides, they'd settle real quick. Well, they stopped for both sides. You have mega millions from television. You have all those advertisers. You don't think there was pressure external outside of the league, apart from the owners and the players? Big business knows that this is, you know, the goose that lays the golden egg. They they didn't want anybody cutting off that goose's neck. Oh, it. no, exactly. I mean, here's the thing. You had two players threatening to hold up the settlement in uh, the gentleman from the New England Patriots lineman. Um, his name's escaping me right now. And also Vincent Jackson from the Chargers here saying, you know what, make us restricted, unrestricted free agents or give us $10 million. Or else we're not going to agree to the settlement because the NFL will not settle unless everything goes away. Not only the Players Association's lawsuit, but the individual players yeah. and the retired players. Well, hopefully the retired players benefit uh, well from, from all. Their pension's going to at least double as part of this. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the people I'm most concerned about. You know, the guys who get paid today get paid pretty well. The guys who played 40, 50 years ago, not so much, you know. When I interviewed Carl Eller yesterday, he was talking about how they didn't want him at the table, and all of a sudden then he fought it, and the judge said, you could be at the bargaining table because you're represented by the same players association. Yeah, that's the way it should be. You know, They need a voice, too. But let's get to... Speaking of voices. Speaking of voices, the vo- former voice of the Dallas Cowboys, he called Super Bowl thirteen. His famous call on Jackie Smith's drop ball is known throughout the sports realm. He also called the 1992 regionals when Leitner hit that 17-footer over Jamal Mashburn. He also covers golf with Tiger Woods' dramatic shot in the 2005 Masters. Vern Lundquist, how you doing, Vern? I'm doing fine, guys. How are you? Wonderful. It's a little warm here. How is it there? Uh, we're going to break 75 here in an hour. Oh, man, that's horrible, isn't it? You know? it's, it's a good reason to live in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. There's something about Colorado that just appeals to people, isn't it? Yeah, and, I, you know, and, uh, I'll turn into one-man public relations chamber of commerce here, but uh, the summers are really spectacular. Not like St. Louis or Chicago where it's 90 and humid all, all the time. Well, and I came from Dallas. So I do know heat. Yeah, but that you know they would always tell you. I, I worked in Fort Worth for a couple of years, and they would tell you it's it's a dry heat. Of course. And, and I'm going, yeah, but I can't get on to the tennis court and play without collapsing until ten o'clock at night. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. Now we, uh, my wife and I, have lived here in Colorado for twenty seven years, and it's it's a, a period like this. And I do know. I, I mean, we're not without knowledge that a lot of the country is suffering right now, but. Uh, we're we're blessed. We're blessed here, and it stays in the seventies. Yesterday, there was some news that Tiger Woods fired his caddy, Steve Williams. What do you think about that? Wow, uh, I was shocked. Uh, I was shocked. Although I, I just saw an interview this morning uh, that ESPN had on. I don't know when it was conducted or where, but I was a little surprised to hear Steve Williams say that uh, when when Tiger came back from his self-imposed uh, hiatus that Steve told him, you got to earn my trust back. 
Uh, so maybe, maybe even from the from the minute the accident happened, and we began to learn a lot more than any of us thought we would ever know about Tiger Woods. Maybe from the get go, uh, that relationship was strained. I didn't think so. Uh, I thought it was so strong that uh, almost uh, nothing could break the bond. So I'm among those who's surprised. It's it's yet another uh, layer being peeled away from Tiger Woods' life. Yeah. Well, maybe Williams thought that bond was strong enough that that he could speak honestly to Tiger and and say, "Hey, you've got to get uh, my trust back" and things like that. And apparently, that was not the case, or it certainly didn't seem to go over well with Tiger. No, no. And uh, I mean, none of us know. I uh, I uh, I'm pretty close to uh, Ian Baker Finch, uh, who's one of our regular broadcasters in golf at uh, at CBS and. I didn't know this until we had we had dinner last summer. The uh, the two couples, my wife and his wife Jenny and Ian and and uh, and I, and we got to talking about this old topic. And I suggested that there was no way that Steve Williams didn't know about Tiger's activities away from the golf course. And Ian Baker Finch said, "I beg to differ." He said, "I I don't think he did know. Uh, he he would not have condoned it." Uh, and it was surprising to me. I just, uh, and it gave me a new take on, on Steve Williams. Uh, and Ian Baker said, he, Steve Williams worked for Ian Baker Finch for five years. That's, that's where the information comes from. And, uh, it was a take on Steve that I hadn't expected to, to learn. Here's the thing. They said that Steve Williams' wife and Tiger Woods' wife, ex-wife were good friends. And I think maybe the, the wife basically stepped in and, Basically, like Steve Williams' wife said, you know what? I don't want you to caddy for Tiger Woods anymore. I want you to tell Tiger, you know what? What you did to this woman was terrible. Yeah, I can I can see that. I didn't know that part of it that uh, that Steve's wife and Elon were were that close, uh, but I can certainly envision a scenario where that happens. I, I just you know uh, I thought they were inseparable. I truly, truly did uh, because Steve never, to my knowledge. He, now he he was a guardian of the palace, you know, and he could be uh, he could be rigid with fans at golf courses during tournaments, uh, and and I always thought he was the keeper of the keys, and that led for me to believe. I mean, I I just I I refused to believe that there wasn't part of the entourage who not only enabled Tiger Woods, but but uh, if they weren't enablers, they knew what was going on. I just uh, he has a very small entourage that's around him, and uh, I just thought that 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 was part of the loyalty. And I, I'm beginning to understand now that in the case of his caddy, I was incorrect. Switching gears, it, it appears that there will be NFL this season. Was there any doubt in your mind? Uh, not really, but then I lived through 82 and 87. And even beyond that, I go back, you know, when there was a strike in the, in the early 70s. Uh, I, now, now I haven't, uh, I haven't been on, uh, on the internet for a while. Is there any fresh news as of right now? No, they're just waiting. The owners were supposed to vote this morning, but the players still haven't voted. Yeah. But I, I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to get done. And I, as long ago as early May, uh, we were uh, back in New York for a CBS meeting, and uh, obviously the networks have uh, millions and almost billions involved in this. So I'm assuming that that our network executives at 
CBS and those at Fox and NBC and ABC slash ESPN or the other way, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that they're privy to information that some of us, most of us don't have. And uh, Sean McManus, our president, stood up at this meeting in early May and said, I truly believe they'll get the thing worked out. So I think we've thought all along that, that they may, there may be brinksmanship involved, but at, at the end they'd get it done. Yeah, I mean, bottom line is it's a your typical labor negotiation. It just happens to be played out on a much grander scale, and it tends to impact a l- millions more than, you know, at a newspaper or someplace else like that. Yeah, and there's so much at stake, and it is such a large stage. And and without question, uh, pro football has become America's game. It did, though, it, it, did, it accomplished that quite some time ago, I think. So the the investment emotionally as well as financially for a lot of Americans was very strong. And uh, I, I, I don't know anything about the negotiations other than that I have a perception uh, that for one of the few times uh, that, you know, we, we tend to stereotype the, the athletes as these rich uh uh, self-effacing, not self-effacing, uh, the obvious contrast to that. These guys who are grand, self-aggrandizing. Uh, and I think in, in the negotiations that fans have, have leaned to an appreciation of the player side more so than the owners. I don't, uh, I don't get a sense that the owners have come out of this thing, uh, with their reputations enhanced. Why do you think the fans are supporting the players this time? Well, I, I, it begins, I believe, with the idea that that uh, that the, the the ownership, what was it, a nine billion dollar profit, and they wanted eight back on a contract that had already been negotiated. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, and I just, I just feel, and there's no way to prove this, obviously. I just feel that there's a there's a growing perception that. Uh, that the NFL ownership has uh, has made alliances with uh, with cities and and have gone to to the taxpayers and built these you know monuments for themselves and uh, and then left the taxpayer holding it and uh, at what point you know uh, and I, I think that and it, I don't think it had anything to do with what we hope will be the end result that they'll play but it's just a feeling I've got. That for one of the few times, the general American public sided with the players rather than the than the bosses. What do you think of Jerry Jones's monument to himself down there in Texas? I've never seen it. Uh, I do college football now. Uh, you know, they call it Jerry World. And and of course, when I say uh, convincing the taxpayers to to uh, to underwrite the project, I'm thinking about him. Uh, the, the mayor at the time that this whole project was conceived, the mayor of Dallas, uh, Laura Miller, uh, insisted that they weren't going to go, uh, and they were not going to support it to the degree that he insisted, and he got the city of Arlington to go along. And so you've got a $1.1 billion stadium. I guess it's the best in the country, maybe in the world. But uh, I just think the whole process... Uh, is a little excessive, let's put it that way. Yes. What's your favorite sport to cover? Uh, I don't have one. I really don't. And and I've been lucky to do 
a lot of them. I, I think people would would uh, would probably not understand this, uh, but I enjoyed doing figure skating in the Olympics uh, in a degree equal to the NCAA basketball tournament. Uh, the the three Olympics I got to do with Scott Hamilton in a sport that not everybody accepts uh, is is one of the great memories I'll have in my life. Now, I, and I love doing college football. Uh, I, 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 I did the NFL forever and ever, and, and most notably, I think, in Dallas. But I did it with CBS as well. And, and I love doing basketball. The, the great thing, I think, about the, the life I've been privileged to live is that the seasons change. And uh, I get to go directly now. I've, I've been off for a while. And uh, Nancy, my wife, and I use this time to travel. We've just... I got in touch with my roots, literally. I, we've been, we spent a month in Norway, and I'm uh, half Norwegian and half Scandinavian, and I mean half, uh, half Swedish, and we were on a cruise ship, and I was lecturing on the ship. Well, here we are in Norway, so it was time to talk about Tanya and Nancy, and, and great fun to bring back all those memories of the 94 Olympics. And, but, but, so that's why I, I mentioned the figure skating. It's very, much, it's very fresh in my mind. But now I go back to work, August 1st, and my first assignment for CBS is the PGA Championship. Well, that's a pretty neat thing, you know, that I get to go to Atlanta and, and uh, be a part of the broadcast. And then I look forward to the SEC, and, and uh, our college football coverage has been very well received. And I'm working with Gary Danielson, who is absolutely one of the best in the country. So I, that's a long-winded way. I love doing track and field. <laughs> We don't get to do that often, but I've done a lot of it, and uh, I love the challenge of track and field. I think it's as difficult a sport for a broadcaster uh, to call as any. Now, you know, you know you're famous when they mention you on Saturday Night Live. Who do you think did a better impression of you, Phil Hartman or Daryl Hammond? <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to. I've got to promise you this. I've never seen the Daryl, uh, the the Daryl, uh, Daryl, uh, who am I thinking? Hammond? Will Farrell and, uh. Daryl Hammond. Daryl Hammond. Daryl Hammond. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm having a senior moment. Uh, the Phil Hartman thing, I've seen a, a ton of times. Uh, and they actually did two of them. They did one in 92 when Dana Carvey, uh, played Scott Hamilton. And then they did one in 94. Hartman was me both times. And David Spade played Scott. And Nancy Kerrigan actually was in the skit. And Chris Farley was the skater. Uh, I think the best one, and I've not seen the Daryl Hammond, Will Ferrell one. I've never seen it. I know it's out there somewhere. you got to go on YouTube. <laughs> uh, can you get it on YouTube? You can get everything on YouTube. Okay. I think I will. Maybe this afternoon. Uh, but Hartman... <laughs> I swear to God, you know, uh, in, we do a, a bit of a clip in these in these speeches on board the ship, and in in introducing it, I said uh, there's a lot to parody in figure skating coverage, and I understand that. I get it. Uh, so if you're going to be involved in in covering a sport like that, you'd better be prepared to have people make fun of you. And Hartman, I thought, just nailed it. I mean. You know, the, the, the stories about the, the mother who took, took her son 130 miles round trip seven days a week, uh, on and on and on. I, I thought he was 
He was terrific. Okay. Once upon a time, you covered the Dallas Tornadoes, and for those I in the audience did, who don't yeah. know what that is, that, that was a professional soccer team. You know, it was Kyle Rote and Junior and all this stuff, and soccer was going to be the sport of the 70s. And we're coming off the Women's World Cup, and some people out there are enthused again. Is soccer, male or female, ever going to make it in America? I still have real doubts. Uh, and and I watched uh, I watched the Women's World Cup game against Japan from start to finish, and thought it was uh, I thought it was a brilliant game. Uh, I mean, I know you guys have discussed this. The Americans just suffered a ton of lost opportunities. Uh, I, I first covered soccer with the Dallas Tornado just as a local news reporter for a television station in 1968 when Lamar Hunt started the North American Soccer League. And I can remember the, the, the mantra then was uh, all these kids play it, and when they grow up, they're going to become soccer fans if they can't play the game themselves. Well, that was, uh, what, 45 years ago, 40, 40 yeah. 43 years ago. And those kids grew up, of course, and, and began playing football, watching football. And so soccer struggled in the mid 70s. In the late 70s, I don't get a, go on a rant here, but, uh, and, and I loved the sport. I went to the 70 World Cup in Mexico. I went to the 74 World Cup in Germany and the 78 World Cup in Argentina. I got to go to all three of them. And then in 79, at ABC, this is when Giorgio Canaglia and Beckenbauer and Johan Cruyff and all these great, great players from the 70s came and were a part of the North American Soccer League. And we, I was at ABC at the time, we picked it up, and I was a part of the coverage for two years. And we get 70,000 people at a game at Giant Stadium uh, because you had Pele playing, for crying out loud, at Beckenbauer. But we'd get television ratings in a three television channel universe that would vary between two and 2.2. I mean, we couldn't draw an audience. And I know that it's got, it's, it's more of a niche sport now. But I don't believe it's ever going to become the great American passion. I don't think it'll ever rival, it will never have a place in America, uh, equal to that which it has in South America and Europe. Now, a while back you said football is is the national pastime. I won't dispute that. At the basis of that popularity, gambling an important component, do you think? Uh, I'd be naive if I said no. Uh, I'm not a gambler, never have been, don't care about it, don't know the lines, never consult them, uh, and I'm not setting myself up as some kind of a purist. I know that there's an attraction uh, uh, for those who, who place money on a game. Uh, and I think that I think that's a big part of it. I don't deny that at all. Uh, I also think that it's the ideal game for television, just in the, in the, the way the game is laid out, uh, the field, uh, perfect. I mean, so does a basketball court. I get that. Uh, but the, the way the field is laid out, the rhythm of the game is such that, you know, there's, there's action, there's a stop, there's a time for replay, so you can enhance it with all these techniques that television is capable of doing, sometimes uh, in such an obnoxious manner that you just want to scream and throw bricks at the set. Uh, but I think 
television has taken this sport, and the marriage between television and football is is something that has increased its popularity. But when you raise the issue of gambling, I would say yes, I think it's a a, a big part of it. And to deny that, I think, is just to be uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Who gave you the nickname the Golden Throat? <laughs> <laughs> My God, you've done some research. Uh, I'll tell you where it started. Uh, wow, I hadn't thought about this in forever. Uh, Blackie Sherrod has been retired now, but Blackie Sherrod, when he was in his prime, he was Dan Jenkins went to work for Blackie in the late 50s, early 60s. And Blackie was uh, equal, I swear to this, this is true, equal to Jim Murray in Los Angeles, equal to Red Smith in his prime in New York. Blackie Sherrod was as good as any sports writer uh, in the country for a period of about 35 years. And he looked down his nose at, he called them Goldie Throats, and he, those of us who worked in television. And when I moved to Dallas, where he was at the time the uh, sports columnist for the Dallas Times-Herald, uh, I wanted I wanted nothing more than to earn his approval as anything but uh, a goldie throat, and so he he once stretched it out and in in a in a very nice way said okay I'll give him this he's not a goldie throat he's a golden throat okay. so Sc- scatter shooting while wondering whatever happened to Vern Lundquist. <laughs> Wasn't that the way he would start? Oh, the first part was how he would start off his Sunday columns, if memory serves. Yeah, that's right. We've got our next guest on the phone, uh, baseball player Mike McCormick, who was a four-time All-Star, Vern. You probably remember pitching with the uh, Giants and the Senators and the Yankees. Right. Yeah, so we're going to get to Mike, but thank you very much for your time, Vern. Anytime, fellas. Enjoyed it. Good Thanks. luck covering the PGA. Have fun. Okay, we sure will. Thank right. you. Thank you. On the line now, we've got a four-time All-Star, Cy Young Award winner in 1967. He played for the Giants, the Orioles, the Senators, the Giants, the Yankees, and Royals. All these teams he played for, there was before free agency. Mike McCormick, how you doing, Mike? Well, I'm doing fine. How are you guys doing? Good. We just got done with legendary broadcaster Vern Lundquist. Ah, well, that's a good uh, good guest, brother. Definitely. You're not too shabby either, Mike. <laughs> Well, I tell you, I don't know, I think my uh, days are behind me, but I still enjoy talking to you guys about the old days. Now, you, you came up with uh, what, what was then the New York Giants. Yeah, I think what made it kind of unusual was that I came up at 17 right out of high school and was able to stay with the team as, as they moved west and become uh, a fixture in their rotation. So until I had a rehab assignment, Ten years into my career, I had never played in the minor league. What was that like, you know, going from high school and Legion ball to all of a sudden you're in the polo grounds? Well, it was, uh, you know, I was a boy lost in a man's world. But, uh, the ball players, which they could have been kind of, I guess, nasty to me, really accepted me for what I was, and I was a kid, and I was called kid by everybody, and they made my life a lot better than they could have for my so when you went from New York to San Francisco, I mean, it's difficult for anyone, but Willie Mays, they said he was not basically accepted in San Francisco at first, and his family basically had to put up with a lot. Well, he was not. He, uh, 
I won't say that there was segregation, at least in California in those days that I was aware of, but he moved into a pretty upscale neighborhood in San Francisco, and they weren't accustomed to having an Afro-American move in there, and I think there was just some tough times for Willie probably the first year, but after that, everything settled down, and he seemed to be fine. Now, being a native of California, was moving from New York to San Francisco sort of a godsend? For well, you? it was for me. I'm from uh, Southern California, and I, at the time, uh, of course, I was kind of immature, but the only thing I could think, boy, it would have been great to be a Dodger, then I would have gone back to Los Angeles. But uh, I'm glad that I went to San Francisco and raised my family there and lived most of my life there. So uh, it, it's a much better place to live. You know what? You must have loved Candlestick Park because it was a pitcher's park. Well, it was, and I used it to my advantage because the opposing player couldn't stand with the dust and the newspaper wrappers and hot dog wrappers and everything that was blowing in their eyes all the time. So we knew that they didn't like the ballpark, and it was so we'd use it to our advantage because it was going to be our home field whether we liked it or not. Now, what was it like going from the comfort of the Giants and the success the Giants had to Baltimore? Well, that was a difficult time in my career. Uh, I got traded after the 62 World Series, and uh, I'd had shoulder problems, and the Giants had somewhat, uh, I think, given up on me. They Rather than try to resolve the problem, they just thought they would pass it on to somebody else, which in this case happened to be Baltimore. So the first year in Baltimore, I really didn't pitch much, and then the second year uh, I did part of a rehab in Rochester, got my feet under me again and uh, created another value for me as an experienced left-handed pitcher. And uh, so I I think that was an advantage to go into Baltimore at the time. You played with some great players, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. You had Orlando Cepeda, Frank Howard. I mean, a ton of phenomenal players. Boog Powell, who was the best you ever saw or played with and the best you ever saw? Well, I've always said this about the best player I ever saw was Willie Mays, and I probably tainted in my choice because I saw him the most. There's an argument for a lot of other good players. But Willie Mays and Juan Marichal as a pitcher were the two best players that over the course of my career I was able to watch and and, uh, make that kind of statement. Now, when you saw Marichal, did you ever say to yourself, you know, I want to emulate his form? Well, if I did, I'd been in the hospital a lot sooner than I was <laughs> with back problems. I, I don't know how he did it, but uh, he was a master of about five positions he could throw from, all with success. But he had that high kick, and uh, for a batter, it was hard to find where the ball was coming from. We had Gaylord Perry on about a month ago, and he was mentioning that he not only could throw the spitball, he was one of the best bat corkers in baseball history. Did he ever offer to cork your bat? No, I that that's a new one to me. I knew about his spitter and his Vaseline ball and all the things he did to doctor it up, but I I'd never heard that he put cork in a bat. He he never offered you advice on how to throw the spitter or the Vaseline or any of that stuff? Well, I was watching him one day throwing, and I asked him, the ball was dropping about a foot, and I said, Gaylord, what the heck is that? And he said, well, that's my fourth ball. I said, fourth ball, how do you throw it? He said, well, you start by licking these, these two fingers. <laughs> so he, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to have a guy who violated all the rules of pitching and throwing a spitter get to the Hall of Fame and admit that he threw a spitter by writing a book about it. And then they're so uh, upset about some of these guys in more recent days that have been doing things that haven't exactly been on the legal end either. 
What do you think about the steroids? Well, you know, if somebody would have asked me back in my time, uh, you take this little pill and make you five miles an hour faster, and there was no rule that I was violating, I probably would have done it. I, I, I think that athletes are in, think they're invincible, and we all deal with the consequences later. It's not going to be me. It's going to be the other guy. So I, I don't know. I think there was, what we're finding out, or at least what we believe, is that there's so many of them that were using it for a short period of time that uh, you just have to say their records were the best of their time, and you can't say the best of all time because times, conditions, equipment, lighting, travel, I mean, all those things change. So the modern player has it a lot easier in many ways. Now, you found out that you were not invincible, but you you battled back and you won the National League Cy Young Award in 1967. What what was that like for you? Well, that was exciting because uh, the same team that had, gotten rid of me at the end of the 62 season and thought that I was washed up was the same team that made a trade to bring me back as kind of a journeyman left-hander, a short reliever, a long reliever, spot starter. And, and to come back and have that great year for them, uh, it was kind of like, a you know, well, here, this, this will show you. But uh, it, it was very rewarding, very happy. What do you think about Steven Strasburg? I mean, this guy was a phenom like you were at 17, like Sam McDowell was back in the day, and he pitches half a year, and then he needs arm surgery. Do you think it's the way that these pitchers throw now? They put so much torque on their arm, their elbow, their shoulder, that these guys are going to all develop arm problems. Well, they've got the this what seems to be this mystical 100-pitch rule, and they kind of watch these guys with that. And I think if, if, if we'd have played under those same conditions, we probably would have thrown a little harder than we did because we would have had more emphasis in striking you out. On We were taught how to just get you out. And the expectations of my time were to go nine, which didn't happen all the time. But, you know, we like, we usually gave them seven. So uh, I just think they have such big investments in these kids that they have to protect them. And in Strasburg's case, I think that his pitch, he was known for such an overpowering fastball that he probably, uh, you know, wasn't completely strong enough to play in the major leagues yet. And they also attribute a lot of these problems to uh, the slider. Is that a yeah, picture you dealt know. much with? You know, you know, I don't know that they throw the slider as much today as they did in my time. They, they call unless they call that cutter a slider, but. Uh, that's one pitch that I, I think has fallen a little bit by the wayside. I think you're seeing more foot fingers and uh, fastballs, two-seamers, four-seamers, and occasionally the really good overhand curve. Uh, most of them seem to have lost that pitch. Who was a bigger competitor, Bob Gibson or Juan Marichal? Those guys seemed like they were clones of each other. Well, they, they were two different types of personalities. Bob Gibson would just as well knock you down as look at you. Juan just kept things very quiet, and, you know, he's sneaky, and he'd knock you down, and I don't think you realize you'd been knocked down, whereas Gibson would stand out there and try to intimidate you. So there were two different styles, two great pitchers. Uh, obviously, both deserve to be where they are in the Hall of Fame. Now, was there one batter that gave you a, a lot of trouble? Well, you know, I, I've always said that the, the toughest hitter that I had to get out that I remember was a guy named Billy Williams out of Chicago. And I'm a left-hander, he's a left-hander, but I swore he knew what was coming. But most recently, somebody brought it to my attention with all the research that's gone on and past records that the guy that hit me the best 
over my career was Veda Pinson. Was another another left, left-hander. Another left-hander, so uh, that doesn't speak well for my style of pitching. What are you more well-known for, the four-time All-Star, the Cy Young Awards, or giving up Hank Aaron's 500th home run? Well, obviously the the uh, Cy Young, but the 500 was kind of a big year to, at the time, but it... Uh, you know, and right now I think it's great. I'm part of history, but uh, at the time I wasn't so excited about it. <laughs> so I see you also hit the 500th home run by a pitcher in history. Do you still have that baseball? Uh, I, well, yeah, I don't because I didn't know until some time after I had retired that I had done that. Uh, you know, I think with this, the age of the computer, the people have gone back through the archives and created all kinds of statistics and records that we were not aware of. <clears throat> Otherwise, certainly I would have tried to get the ball. But uh, I don't even, I'm having a tough time finding out who I hit it off of. <laughs> what do you think of the current Giants pitching staff? Well, it's, it's, I rank it among the best in baseball, maybe may the best. But there could be an argument about Philadelphia's starting pitching. But the Giants just, you know, have got an incredible year going for them. And they have an inability to score runs. They, You know, they hack away to get one or two runs and, then they beat you two to one, three to two, or shut you out. It's uh, you just hope they can do that all summer. But I don't know. I I think they'd be happy if they could pick up a hitter, somebody get the ball out of the park uh, for the balance of the year. The Cubs have a lot. We'll ship you on Ramos. We'll ship you Carlos Pena. Thank you very much, <laughs> Mr. McCormick. It was a pleasure talking to you. Hey, you're my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. That was former baseball player, four-time All-Star Mike McCormick. Another great show today, Elliot Vern Lundquist. Sarah Haskins, triathlete. Incredible. Okay, so you're going to bike to the office now? Uh, I think I'll take the car now. Air, use the air conditioner? Use the air conditioner. I don't want the heat. Another great column today, Elliot. Thank I see you. you're taking the next week off. Yeah. You going on vacation? Yeah, a little vacation. Sounds take, great. Take life easy. Again, you're listening to Sports and Torts. Tune in again next week for another great show. I'm David Spade with Elliot Harris. I want to thank our producer, Dave Olson. Another great job. And again, thanks for listening to Sports and Torts. Thank you.